Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them, large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And that's the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And this is where we begin. I am so excited about doing this series of messages for you and with you on the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is, in my thinking, one of the most understudied things in the Bible that Christians ought to read first and really commit to their hearts because it is, in effect, Jesus' manifesto. It's, it's Jesus saying exactly what he came for and the way of Christian living. And he's laying down for us the, the articles of incorporation. He's laying down for us the, the constitution for Christian life. It, it's all here in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I'd like to set the scene for you, and I will try to uh, be as vivid in my imagination as I can, and I hope you will activate your imaginations accordingly. You have to imagine this scene, it's midsummer, let's say, when most of the crops are planted and there's a little bit of time to uh, sharpen the scythe and so forth, and uh, people are living a, a somewhat slightly more relaxed lifestyle than during the planting and the harvesting times. And it's a time when people can talk and socialize a little more. And uh, this area around Capernaum is an area that is unique in that it is a crossroads area. Capernaum is a town that is situated between three major crossroads of the Middle East in those days. You might say they're like major intersections between uh, interstate highways, uh, and the three come together right about there. They're border territories. There were two sons of Herod, and uh, each one claimed a certain part of Herod's territory as their domain, and they, their lands uh, that they claimed, the two Herod's sons, bumped up against each other right there at Capernaum, and so each one had tax collectors or toll collectors at uh, the crossroads so that they could take a certain tariff off of the different commodities and things that passed through. For this reason, it was a slightly volatile area, so there was a Roman guard placed there, and that's probably where uh, Jesus got to know that Roman centurion that uh, asked him to heal the servant with a simple word from his mouth, you know. And in this area of Capernaum, it's a, it's a very bustling area. It's a, it's a place where there are hotels. And, you know, I, I got to tell you, for example, um, the first time I visited Jasper many, many years ago, uh, I don't remember any hotels 
around town. I, I guess there's probably one downtown somewhere. I, you'd have to tell me about that later, but, but I don't remember seeing a lot of hotels. When we moved back here some 30, 35 years later, we come here to live, and I see there's a hotel on every main road going around the town, and, and it went to French Lick the other day, and there's hotels out on the roads outside of French Lick, and I remember French Lick being a dying town that was really withering away, and, and uh, so imagine, if you will, that Capernaum is a lot like Jasper. It's a town that has its core population, and then it has all of these people who pass through on the various crossroads. I guess you've noticed Jasper has traffic issues. <laughs> now, I'm new around here, so probably I see it differently than you do, but you got some real traffic issues around here. <laughs> And, and a lot of it has to do with the trucking and the various transportation-related stuff that gets this industry that's so proper or, or prosperous around here going. And, and so it's not hard for me to imagine Capernaum and Jasper being similar. And then you have this transient population and this uh, imported population of people who have come to, to serve in the various industries. And so Capernaum's like that. Um, if you notice in the scripture passage, uh, the writer describes people coming from the Decapolis. Now, maybe that one has skipped your notice in the past, but the Decapolis is a, is a word, a descriptive term that describes the ten cities. You know, you've heard of Minneapolis and St. Paul being called the Twin Cities, for example, and you, you have a lot of places like that in, in our uh, in our communities around the country that uh, Dallas-Fort Worth, it's hard to tell when you've left one and gone into the other, right? Well, the Decapolis is a term they used in those days to describe these 10 cities that were all within eight or 10 miles of each other around the region of the Lake of the Sea of Galilee. And um, people were coming from all over. There's all kinds of foreign activity moving through. There's all kinds of native activity happening. And then there's the townspeople themselves, Peter the apostle being one of those. And uh, Jesus being part of a family that no doubt passed through there on a regular basis all through his life when he was even a young child going through there um, on his way to the various festivals and things. His father surely did business with people in Capernaum as just a natural out cropping or outpouring of his worship and his commerce all sort of combining into one thing. And uh, these people were probably all familiar with each other in certain ways. And, uh, you know, just like in a town like Jasper, there are people that, that uh, you've just known for a long time, even though you don't know them that personally, you've encountered them regularly, like the shopkeepers and uh, the managers of the various establishments and things like that. And so they're not unfamiliar to you. And yet they're not close, fast friends either. And so this was, I think, how it was for the people in those days. And that's why Jesus was not a stranger to them. He was not uncommon in Capernaum. And yet he began to emerge and get their attention in a new way when he heals the sick, raises the dead, returns sight to the blind, and preaches some pretty radical stuff. And then he begins what I always think of as the Sermon on the Mount seminar. 
because I really don't think that this was intended to sound the way it does in the original author's words. It sounds when you read it as though, you know, it all happened in a day. But this sort of thing doesn't happen in a day. You've probably, you, you people, some of you are really old time Methodists and you probably remember how in the old tradition of the Methodists they had camp meetings and things and revivals that would last for weeks. And this sort of thing doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. People just start trickling in and uh, slowly the word gets out that there's this thing going on and the new preacher is giving a lot of messages every night and, and slowly people start to come. And that's the whole reason the camp meetings happened, you know, was because the person would set up a, a stand or some sort of, of stage, you know, a platform, and they'd start preaching every day, and the word would get out, and then people would bring their campers, and uh, they'd come, and, and they'd just stay for several days. And uh, these things often happen in the middle of the summer because it was a time when people had a little bit of extra uh, opportunity away from their pursuits to spend some time being revived. And so in the same way, Jesus is doing all these miracles. He's teaching in the synagogue there at Capernaum, and that synagogue still stands. And he eventually is overwhelming the community with all of the attraction and all the attention he's drawing. And I often wonder if it wasn't that same Roman centurion that had seen him as a respected elder or knowledgeable person in the community. You know, the, the, the Roman was a very civilized and decent man, it sounds like. And I wonder if he didn't say, you know, Jesus, we're starting to have a little bit of a problem. He's sort of like the chief of police in the town, you know, and he's saying, Jesus, I think you might need to take this outside of town. It's getting a little bit dicey around here. The streets are getting crowded. There's anxiety about all these strangers. I wonder if it wouldn't be better for you to do this over on a hillside somewhere just outside of town. And maybe Jesus said, you know, you're right, Joe, probably a good idea. And so with the encouragement of the local constabulary, they take this seminar out of town and up on the hillside. And this is when it becomes a thing in and of itself. This Sermon on the Mount series. I'm going to do a series. I think Jesus did a series. 19th century Adventist writer Ellen Gould White writes beautifully about this. And I want to uh, read her introduction to her book on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, I, I would recommend the book to you, except that I got to be honest with you, it doesn't take long before she moves in some theological and doctrinal directions that aren't very Methodist. So, but she still writes magnificently to set the stage. She says, more than 14 centuries before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the children of Israel gathered in the fair vale of Shechem. And from the mountains on either side, the voices of the priests were heard proclaiming the blessings and the curses. A blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, a curse if you do not obey. And thus the mountain from which the words of benediction were spoken came to be known as the Mount of Blessing. But it was not upon Gerizim that the words were spoken, which have come as a benediction to a sinning and sorrowing world. Israel fell short of the high ideal which had been set before her. Another than Joshua must guide his people to the true rest of faith. 
No longer is Gerasim known as the Mount of Beatitudes, but that unnamed mountain beside the Lake of Gennesaret, where Jesus spoke the words of blessing to his disciples and the multitude. Isn't that beautiful? You remember, I read a little bit of that to you a few weeks back as we were talking about Joshua leading the people into the promised land. And we talked about how how they had only to observe things like the Jubilee Sabbath and God would bless them. And then I told you that there's no evidence in scripture that they ever kept the Jubilee Sabbath as we are doing now. And I could tell you that this becomes the new sort of Joshua proclamation. Isn't it interesting, by the way, Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, similar names, in fact, the same in most respects. Now, throughout this series, I'm going to do what I've been doing already, which is to try to use my imagination and the additional knowledge that's available of these places and times to try to help you get life from scripture that maybe you haven't experienced before so that your imagination is as engaged as I hope it can be so that this becomes a very real thing that you can uh, really experience in a new way that might change your life. Again, setting the stage beautifully, Ellen Gould White says, as something strange and new, his words fall upon the ears of the wondering multitude Such teaching is contrary to all they have ever heard from the priests or the rabbis. They see in it nothing to flatter their pride or to feed their ambitious hopes. But there is about this new teacher a power that holds them spellbound. The sweetness of divine love flows from his very presence as the fragrance from a flower. His words fall like rain upon the mown grass as showers that water the earth. All feel instinctively that here is the one who reads the secrets of the soul, yet who comes near to them with tender compassion. Their hearts open to him, and as they listen, the Holy Spirit unfolds to them something of the meaning of that less which humanity in all ages so needs to, that lesson that humanity in all ages needs to learn. And so, Jesus opens the Sermon on the Mount with what I believe is the perfect description of the plan of salvation. These words are familiar to you, and if you kept your Bible open, you might notice that it comes right after what I had just finished reading from the Gospel of Matthew. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In this series, we're gonna discover that Jesus wasn't talking about material poverty. He wasn't saying that because you have no stuff, you're blessed. He was talking about something spiritual. And yet he is talking about wealth because the concept is still the same. It is, wealth is to possess much. Those who are considered wealthy have much stuff. And Jesus would have us understand that we're blessed when we have a poverty of spirit because if we don't own a lot of stuff, we have nothing to lose. (laughs) I was telling Laura today that I might uh, risk preaching the gospel of Janis Joplin for a second. If you know this old song from 
her song about Bobby McGee, she says, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. You know, when you're poor, you got nothing to lose, and it sets you free. In the same way, Jesus wants us to understand that when we don't possess much of the self that can't be measured, but is more dangerous, more potent than possessions of things, our ego, which is our sense of self, if we're wealthy in self, it means we're full of ourselves. Let's just face it, that's what it means. If you possess a great deal of spiritual wealth in that sense, he's talking about your ego. If you have a large ego, it will be difficult for you to get into the kingdom of heaven. He said to the large ego of this rich young man who wanted to follow him, he said of that that it would be harder for the camel to go through the eye of the needle. When we have a large ego, we are not very useful to God. Therefore, blessed is he who is poor in spirit, whose self has been given away. So there's nothing to lose by sacrificing your pride and submitting to the Lord. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, Jesus says. Mourning for what? Well, if you've given up all your possessions, and especially that most prized of possessions, the pride of my ego and self, it is a sense of loss that will be difficult to bear. Let's face it, most of us refuse to submit ourselves in humility for fear of having our status our sense of importance, our sense of authority and influence damaged. We don't want to give up our position in community with other people, in society. And this is a great loss. I think you can agree with me if you've lived more than a few years that one of the things that is most prevalent in life is grief. Grief is whenever something changes forever or seems to be forever. We most often associate grief with the death of someone that we love or the grief we feel when we find out that we have a diagnosis with a short-term uh, expiration date, you might say. And uh, yeah, it's just as true when we lose a job or a dream. Grief is just as real when our church changes in some way that it doesn't feel like it will ever come back from. Grief is so frequent and so common in our lives that we may forget that that's what's really going on is we are grieving. And no wonder then when we give up those things that we grieve and let them decay and turn to dust, we are mourning. And in that mourning, we are comforted. And so Jesus says, when you give up your pride, your ego, yourself, and really submit to him, he will comfort you. As you try to make the adjustment from life full of self to life where self has died. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. You know, to be meek is to be humble and others-oriented. Biblically, it really means to be God-oriented. Meekness is not weakness. Can we say that again? Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is a willingness to risk personal interests for the sake of the one 
who is greater, the Lord. You see, he's laying it out for you. When you give up everything that you consider your possession, especially yourself, your ego, and you let yourself die, and then you mourn this death, you find Jesus alongside you, comforting you as you mourn, and then you find Jesus saying, now that you have been weakened, picture Job, whose wife comes to him as he lays in the puddle of his own misery, and she says, why don't you just curse God and die? And he looks at her and he says, I know. One day my Redeemer and I are going to look each other in the eye face to face, and when we do, I will be in my flesh and in my body, and with my own eyes I will see him. It's Job saying that in his depth of loss and decay, in his grief and his sorrow, that he is most ready to dedicate all of himself to the Lord. Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. Blessed are the meek, because they're not weak, they're strong. They have the strength of conviction that can't be broken by the temptation of stuff and influence and power. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. If you're in that frame of mind I just described, then the thing you want worse than anything else is righteousness, not just for yourself, but for the whole world. Righteousness, a word that simply means rightness with God. Of all the relationships in your realm, which are the most important to you and which would you do anything to keep right those relationships? What sacrifices are you willing to make in order that your marriage would remain strong, that your relationship with your children and your parents would remain strong? What relationships are so important to you that you will do what it takes to right them when they are tilting in one direction or another and they're in danger of capsizing? To be righteous is to be right with God. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. It is literally true that you can't forgive others without a willingness to seek forgiveness and reconciliation. The merciful know they have been shown great mercy the one who craves righteousness knows that righteousness with God comes through repentance and mercy. I have found in my own life that it is easier for me to forgive than it is to seek forgiveness. And yet, I can't usually forgive successfully until I seek forgiveness. In other words, I have found that when I apologize to the one to whom I think I am, uh, from whom I am owed an apology. In other words, that person that I've had a grief with for a long time, and I think they owe me an apology when I give up. You ready? Let it die, and I grieve that I'm never going to get my apology. Then I have the meekness of spirit to say to them, you know, I'm sorry for my part in our differences. And the amazing thing is, is when you do that, Forgiveness washes over the whole situation. And for all you know, that other person's never going to change, but you've been changed forever. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. God's mercy covers our sin. And we begin a journey toward purity called sanctification. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Being at peace is simply the result of having done everything previously named and therefore having nothing left to lose. Peace is just another word for nothing left to lose. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Must I say any more about that than if you do all of the above, you're going to be living in such a different way from the people around you that sooner or later it's going to put you at odds with some of those people. Because that's not how the world works. Because it's radical, off the charts, off the chain kind of thinking. And Jesus says, get ready, there will be persecution because some people would prefer for you to conform rather than reform them and the world around you. And so who do you do it for? You do it for the Lord. And you do it whether or not the people around you willingly accept it. And you know what's really amazing? In church, the goal is that at least 51% of us would be committed to it. Simple as that. Jesus' opening statement of the Sermon on the Mount seminar is simple. Humble yourself, grieve your sin, let yourself die, and you will be comforted. Seek righteousness with God by asking God for mercy. Open yourself to a total transformation as you become daughters and sons of God who would rather suffer than reject God in any way. And let that be the sign for the world to see that Jesus saves and changes people and the world. As we go into this series together, we're going to break all this down and we're going to really work towards experiencing the Sermon on the Mount seminar. And I hope that you will join me in not only hearing it and experiencing it, but being changed forever by it. Let us pray. Almighty God, I thank you for your word. I pray with all my heart that you burn it into the hearts of the people, that each of them might begin their journey towards righteousness, that they might begin to live these be attitudes, that they might be all of these things in their attitude, in their heart and mind and soul. We know it won't be easy, Lord, so we're relying on your Holy Spirit to get us there. And it is in the Spirit's name we pray. Amen.